How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation once again with James Traub, the author of John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit. We're discussing Adams' presidency and later life. Mr. Traub, thank you again for joining me. Happy to be here. After his eight years as Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams decides to run for president, and he runs against Andrew Jackson. Among others, right. And what ultimately happens, and how does he get elected president, despite the fact that uh, Jackson, didn't Jackson get more popular votes? Oh, he got twice as many popular votes and a lot more electoral votes. And so, you know, Adams was not a popular guy. I mean, in the normal course of things, you serve two terms as secretary of state and then you become president. Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, that's how it worked. Um, That system was breaking down. Jackson was very popular. He'd been a great Indian fighter. Adams was not a popular figure and and didn't campaign. And so uh, he would have lost outright in a two-man race, but it wasn't a two-man race. There was also William Crawford, another cabinet member, and Henry Clay. And so the Constitution stipulated then, as it does now, that if you don't get a majority of electoral votes, the vote goes to the House of Representatives, where every state gets one vote. And so that's what happened. Uh, Clay finishes fourth. Uh, Crawford is quite ill. It's clear it's going to come down to Adams and Jackson. And then the horse trading begins. And uh, everybody is trying to recruit Henry Clay. But Henry Clay, who was a kind of the Lyndon Johnson of his day, a wily Paul from the West, um, he thought Adams was totally stuck up, but he thought Jackson was a danger. He thought Jackson was a Napoleon, a man on horseback. He, he, he thought he would turn America into a martial republic. So he was always in favor of Adams, who he also thought would be an unsuccessful, unpopular president, and that, that way Clay would succeed him as president. And so as a result of conversations between Adams and Adams proxies and Clay and Clay proxies, Clay agrees that he will use his influence and deliver his home state of Kentucky as well as other Western states. Now, what was in those conversations became a matter of dispute and has never been decisively settled. It seems pretty clear to me and to others that there was an implicit understanding that Clay would become secretary of state because that would be his launching pad to be president. Uh, Adams's diaries are full of suggestive things, but no proof. Clay's own letters seem to disclaim all that. I would never do such a thing. How could anybody think that about me? But that doesn't tell us much of anything. In any case, Clay delivered big time. And Adams won uh, in the House of Representatives. The news got out that Clay allegedly had been promised secretary of state. Adams then makes him secretary of state at which point everybody cries, corrupt bargain. And Andrew Jackson begins campaigning for 1828 
the next day against this corrupt figure, the kind of language that we know all too well in our own world today. So he becomes president of the United States. And what would you say was Adams' greatest accomplishment prior to becoming president and his greatest accomplishment as president? Well, you know, Adams is a member of what I think of as a, a category of two, which is presidents who had better pre-presidencies and better post-presidencies than their presidencies. And I guess this would make a fun quiz for your listeners, but I'm going to ruin the mystery because the other one is Taft. I mean, Taft was a very effective governor general in the colony of the Philippines. And then, of course, was a a quite estimable Supreme Court chief justice, but an ineffective president. Adams, much more so. Adams was a great figure before he was president, and he was a great figure after he was president, and he was a mediocre president. Nobody classes him in the top 50%. So I could choose among so many things for the pre-presidency. Probably the most lasting one is when he was Secretary of State under Monroe, he negotiated a treaty with the Spaniards called the, uh, the Continental Treaty, which not only gave the United States Western Florida, then controlled by Spain, but also gave them unquestioned title to the Louisiana Purchase, which Spain had disputed, and what nobody had expected, it drew a line. I mean, it was a, it was a kind of hypothetical line, but it was a real line through Spanish territory from what was then the Midwest to the Pacific coast. It was the moment when the United States actually became what it had always dreamed of being a a continental nation. Now, it would be many, many years before all that blank space got filled in with American territory, but it was considered at the time a tremendous achievement. Now, the greatest achievement of his presidency. You know, I don't know. He didn't. I mean, it would be it would be misleading because the truth of this presidency is that the promise of it was enormous or rather Adams's hopes for it were enormous. He never really accomplished anything of what his hopes were. So the story of his presidency is disappointment. So um, he's not that popular upon the time he comes for re-election. And when he runs for re-election, uh, that time Jackson wins. Is that right? Right. So Jackson wipes him out. I mean, it was an incredibly ugly contest. Jackson wins. Adams goes home. He's uh, he's an old man, uh, you know, in his late 60s. So, you know, time to, to, to tend to his fruit trees. But he can't. He's too ferocious. His friends come to him and say, there's a seat. You can run for the House of Representatives. You'll win. You won't have to do anything. He says, OK, fine. And he, he runs for the House and he wins. Now, no one had ever even contemplated doing this, much less done it before. And he then serves from 1833 until his death in 1848 in the House. And so this last phase of his career, I don't know if I would have written a book about John Quincy Adams without this last phase of his career, because this is something quite extraordinary. He becomes the great spokesman in the Congress against slavery. And this becomes the great cause of his life, one that he had never premeditated. I mean, he hated slavery, as all good New Englanders did, but he just thought, that's the way it is. I'm not about to divide the nation. And he more and more came to feel that even if 
the nation must be divided. The union must be dissolved in order to eliminate slavery, then let it happen. So he serves in the House of Representatives, and interestingly, he dies in the House of Representatives. Is that right? What could be more apt? He just keels over. He has a stroke. He's 80 years old, 1848. I mean, this is now so far away from the world he was born into. They're debating whether or not they should give pensions to veterans of the Mexican-American War, which, by the way, he had opposed because he thought that they would have slaves there and it would it would increase the size and strength of the, of the slave power. And he keels over and dies. And by this time, this man who people thought was an old fuddy-duddy, almost a figure of fun, was worshipped, was worshipped because throughout the North and the West, he was seen as the eloquent, fearless hero who had stood up against the slave power. And he was celebrated wherever he went in a way that was incredibly gratifying to him. He almost couldn't admit it, but it was true. So um, how many children did John Quincy Adams have with his wife, Louise? Well, they had they had a little girl who died at age one, which, as you can imagine, was just the most awful thing that ever happened to them. But they had tragedy after tragedy. I mean, one of their kids was an alcoholic and died quite young. Another committed suicide, almost certainly. He jumped off a ship. I mean, it was just one devastating blow after another. Four children of whom three died. And the the two boys who died when older accomplished nothing. They were just failures. One carries the line on, Charles Francis Adams, who becomes himself a great figure and is the father of the great historian Henry Adams. And by the way, there is today a person whose name is John Quincy Adams, the seventh. So that line continues to today. So what happened to Louisa after John? Well, she only lives for a few years afterwards. Uh, she had a terrible life. He was an awful husband. He was a bad father. He was a bad husband. He was not a good friend. I mean, you can't sugarcoat these things. He made Louisa's life miserable. And she was very unhappy most of her life, and she had to bear up under it. Um, And so she died a few years later and was buried next to him. So, by the way, was he known as John Quincy Adams when he was a young boy? And why was he not John Adams Jr.? Why did they put Quincy in there? Well, so first of all, the proper pronunciation, as people in that town in Massachusetts will tell you, is Quincy though we all say Quincy. So in those days, they would have called him John Quincy Adams. And I think, you know, he was called Johnny when he was a little boy. And, you know, his friends uh, called him, actually, they called him Mr. Adams, to tell you the truth. I don't know how many people were on a John basis with him. And so, you know, the way that people would always clearly distinguish him from his father was by the full name But, uh, you know, whenever I see anybody addressing him, it's always Mr. Adams, except his wife and I suppose his children, though God knows. So the total time you took to research was how long and how how long did it take to write your book? You know, it's hard to remember now. The book came out in 2016. But 
you know, reading 17,000 pages of a journal, even though I was able to get almost all of it in TypeScript form or printed form, takes a long time. So if I had to guess, I would say the whole process was about three years or maybe a little more. In my case, I can't really distinguish between the reading part and the writing part because unlike a lot of actual academics um, who love research and find writing really painful, uh, I really like writing and I don't like putting off all the writing until I'm done with all the research. And so I was doing both at the same time. Okay. So did you come away after all of this research and writing admiring Adams more or less than you had before you began the project? Well, David, I would say I possibly liked him less, but I admired him more. And I know that seems odd, but that is very much Adams. And what I mean by that is he was really a prickly person who was terribly lonely a lot of the time. And so I felt for him. You know, but I didn't think, wow, I'd love to have a beer with that guy. However, you know, the thing that can see a biographer through, if you don't have that warmth, is something much deeper. And my sense of respect and even reverence for this man who really was a kind of noble Roman, you know, all these founding types all patted themselves on Cicero or Cato. But Adams was like that. You know, he really was almost eager for an opportunity to sacrifice himself for the Republic. And so I came away with a profound respect for him. Was he not considered one of the highest IQ individuals, if not the highest, ever serve as president of the United States? So this whole question of who has what IQ seems almost bizarre to me, since we're trying to somehow figure backward from there what we know of their achievements to what their IQ must have been. So I don't know how to answer that question. What I can say is that he was the very rare example of an extraordinarily brilliant man who had an extraordinarily brilliant father. I don't know which one of them had a higher IQ. What I can say about Adams, here's an example of how brilliant he was. When he left the presidency and didn't know quite what he wanted to do with himself, he had been mulling in his head, this seems very odd, but this will tell you something about Adams, the idea of writing a Byronic epic about a medieval Irish king who had resisted an English invasion named Dermot McMorrow, a really obscure subject. So he would take these long walks around Washington, and in his head, he would compose quatrains, and he could compose vast amounts of quite polished, and none of it was great, there's a reason you don't know about this, but he could compose vast amounts of poetry in his head about this obscure moment of history, hold it absolutely in his head, and then come back and write the whole thing out. I mean, I think that he must have had large amounts of Shakespeare absolutely by heart, certainly the Bible by heart, as many other people did, much of Cicero by heart. And into his, the very last years of his life, the late 70s, I don't find any sign 
that his mental abilities wavered. And frankly, speaking as a 68-year-old myself, I'm quite aware of, you know, the inroads that time makes on your memory and on your mind. And he seems to have been almost invulnerable to it to the very end. So let me ask you finally about something I was involved with, and you can tell me better than I uh, probably knew before or know about something that John Quincy Adams is reported to have done. Um, I served as chairman of the Smithsonian for a number of years. Um, there is a man named James Smithson, and James Smithson supposedly died, left his estate to his nephew. If his nephew had no children, the estate would come back and then would be creating a institution for the increase and in diffusion of knowledge in the United States. It's about roughly $500,000 or so. And ultimately, that the nephew dies with no heirs. The estate gets the money back, and then it's being given to the United States for the creation of this institution. I was told that John Quincy Adams argued that it was not a British trick and that they should accept the money. Is that true? Well, not only is that true, the question is what to do with it. And a lot of people said, let's build a college. And Adams said, well, that's not what it's for. It's not, that's not for that. And Adams was, he had wanted to build all sorts of scientific establishments when he was president. So he said, this is supposed to be an institution to advance learning. That's what the money should go for. And so probably more than any other individual, John Quincy Adams deserves credit for the fact that we have a Smithsonian institution today. But a second part of this story, as I was told, is this. Um, when a delegation is finally uh, authorized to go over and pick up the money, they didn't have, uh, I guess, uh, wiring instructions in those days. So yeah. they go over and pick up the money. They bring it back. They don't know exactly what to do with the $500,000 or so. So they put it in Arkansas state bonds, which promptly go bankrupt. And then there's a debate in Congress. Should they replace the $500,000 and go ahead with the idea that the uh, Mr. Smithson wanted, or should they just say, forget it? And John Quincy Adams, I was told, said, no, we have an honor duty to replace the money. Is that true? I believe that's, I believe that's correct. I believe that's right. So in two cases, I guess we uh, have John Quincy Adams to thank for the Smithsonian Institution. Yes. So let me ask you, how many books have you now written? I think the answer is nine, with the 10th coming out in February. Wow. And what's that on? Hubert Humphrey. Oh, wow. Did he ever have a, a full-length biography before like that? Yeah, he actually had a perfectly good biography. And the reason why I wrote it is the reason why people often write such books, which is I have my own understanding of why he matters. And as someone who's written a lot about liberalism, uh, he matters very much in understanding what mid-20th century American liberalism, and especially Cold War liberalism, right. were all about. It's called okay. True Believer. Uh... He was certainly that. I want to thank you, James Traub, for your terrific discussion of John Quincy Adams and your book, John Quincy Adams, uh, Militant Spirit. I uh, appreciate your giving us this much time to let us know more about this president. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. 
you can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.